Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solve Regina University. And today I'm going to be joined by Shannon Martinez and Amanda Mahoney about their paper, Culturally Sensitive Behavior Intervention Materials, a Tutorial for Practicing Behavior Analyst. Shannon is a doctoral candidate for a PhD in Applied Behavior Analysis at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She is also a clinical director of ABA services at Firefly Therapy Clinic in South Carolina and an adjunct faculty for Simmons University. Amanda is an associate professor of behavior analysis at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She is also a former associate editor of behavior analysis research and practice, and she's on the editorial board of that very journal. I had a really interesting conversation with Shannon and Amanda about their paper. I think it's a really important topic, and I'm excited to share it with you all now. So without further ado, here's my interview with Shannon Martinez and Amanda Mahoney. Hello, Shannon and Amanda. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to have you both on the show to talk about your paper titled Culturally Sensitive Behavior Intervention Materials, a Tutorial for Practicing Behavior Analysts. Before we jump into that topic, and it's such a, an important topic, and your paper does such a great job of going into a lot of the nuance and providing some real practical ideas and, and guidance for folks. But before we jump into that, would you mind each introducing yourself, maybe talking about your current role, what you're currently up to, maybe a little bit of uh, your background and why you're interested in this topic? Um, yeah, sure. So thank you again for having me on. I am Shannon Martinez and I'm a BCBA. I currently work as the clinical director at Firefly Therapy Clinic. I also um, work as an analyst for um, PBS Corp doing just some assessing and analysis supervision work for them. I am an adjunct faculty at Simmons University. So I teach some grad classes and I also do mentoring for them. Um, I have about 11 or 12 years of experience using ABA with children on the spectrum and with all different disabilities. And that started with my own son. Um, I basically had behavior analysts come and teach me how to work with him when he was around three and a half. So I have that experience on the parent side and then also as the analyst as well. Um, so that um, kind of perspective drives a lot of what I do. So making sure that we're looking at best fit for families, um, best fit for uh, diverse backgrounds as well. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of why I got into this whole area. 
Thank you for sharing. When your son started, did you say that your son started receiving services? Yes. When, when he started receiving services, was behavior analysis like new to you? You hadn't, it wasn't on your, your radar otherwise? Yeah, so um, I was a very young parent. I was like 21 and my husband was deployed and we were far from family. So it was just me and this little kid that was running into walls and crashing things and spitting and running out of buildings. And I didn't know what to do. And I actually had gone on um, Autism Society chat group online and I was asking other mothers. I was like, what do I do? This kid's out of control. I don't know. He's just everywhere. And um, they said, oh, silly, you need ABA. And I'm like, what is that? And so luckily I had TRICARE at the time, which was a great service that could really hook you up with the analysts and the RBTs. They were just tutors at that time. Um, but yeah, so that's that's how I got into it. I didn't know anything about it. And when our behavior analyst came in and started teaching me how to work with him, um, she uh, was saying, hey, you're doing pretty good at this. Why don't you do it for a living? And I was like, well, I'm not doing anything else, so why not? So I changed all my coursework and, you know, started getting into the field that way. That's awesome. How long yeah. was your kid receiving services before you're like, yeah, I'm going to pursue this? Was it like pretty quickly or? In about six months of one-on-one -on -one training with her and I, we, we didn't, I didn't end up doing the, the tutor system through them because the way it was explained to me is either you could have a small amount of hours with a high level person or a lot of hours with a lower trained person. I was like, I want the expert. So, um, yeah, she trained me directly one on one. And after about six months, um, she was already starting to fade out and I was um, transitioning into the coursework. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Man, yeah. uh, being the history sort of geek I am, I'll just comment. Uh, so much of our field is built by specifically mothers of children with autism, right? And uh, the perspective that parents have uh, is so important and, and the amount of work that's been done by specifically mothers of children with autism is huge. So thank you. Thank you. Amanda, would you mind introducing yourself, talking a little bit about your background, what you're up to and, and why you're interested in this topic? Uh, sure. I am Associate Professor uh, in Behavior Analysis at the Chicago School for Professional Psychology, uh, which is where Shannon and I met. Um, so working in the Behavior Analysis program in the online campus, um, I actually live in San Diego, California. Um, I started in 2014 as adjunct faculty and then came on full time in 2017 um, uh, and uh, um, have just kind of enjoyed working as a faculty person since then. Um, prior to that, um, I my experience was in autism and developmental disabilities. And so a lot of the work um, and research that I currently do with my students is focused on that same topic. Um, and uh, so like you, Cody, um, coming out of Western Michigan's program was where I was first introduced to behavior analysis, um, wonderful program. Uh, I left after getting my undergraduate degree there and went to work uh, at the New England Center for Children. And so I started working in uh, residential units and did that for a few years. And then I moved back to Michigan and was setting up some autism preschool classrooms in Michigan and um, getting my PhD. And 
Um, and then uh, somehow made it to the dissertation phase. And while uh, I was kind of planning my dissertation and what I wanted to do, I had the opportunity to go to East Africa and work with Apopo, which is an organization that trains rats in scent detection tasks, because my advisor at the time, uh, Dr. Al Poling, was a senior advisor for them. And so I went out there and learned about applied animal behavior. Um, and I ended up staying out there for a few years, um, so learned a lot, uh, and then uh, moved back to the United States and started looking for academic positions. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that my kind of interest in this um, really, you know, I guess I want to say that um, I believe that, uh, you know, as a white person that um, wants to um, be an ally and a co-conspirator for historically marginalized and oppressed people that um, I want to support the efforts that they're making, but also that if I see something that is racist or isn't working for the best interest of everyone or um, is causing health disparities that I want to act on those. And so, um, you know, I think that that's what Shannon and I's paper is, is doing, right? We noticed something, we started talking about like, hey, our BIPs aren't working. And so um, how can we, you know, or what, what tools are out there that we can maybe bring to our field to address that? You've segued us perfectly into the paper. So let's jump into it. I think one of the things I want to start off to talking about, so again, the, the title of the paper is Culturally Sensitive Behavior Intervention Materials, a Tutorial for Practicing Behavior Analysts. The beginning of your paper, you sort of define what culture is from, from like a understanding of how it might then influence behavior and talk about why it's important to be I'm not sure that this is the right word, and we'll talk about the right words to use, but sensitive in practice. So uh, what, what is culture exactly as we understand it, and why is it important to be sensitive to that within practice? Would you mind sort of talking about that? Yeah, so, you know, in, in one part when we're looking at what is culture, um, one of the reasons why my explanation of that took, like, such a large, like, two paragraphs um, is because sometimes I think we get caught up in culture of just being like an ethnic group or something like that. But really, when we're looking at culture, it can include uh, beliefs, values, practices that are um, socially developed by a group and socially influenced. But because we have so many groups and subgroups and it can be um, a family culture, it can be a school culture, you can actually share not only different cultures with all different groups that you relate to, but also um, you are going to have varying levels of cultural beliefs and practices and values for each of those. Um, so um, if you're looking at, let's say, how much you celebrate holidays for a religious cultural piece, um, with that, you could have one religion and some people are really doing every single holiday like by the book and other ones are just kind of here and there and do a little bit. Some may have catchphrases that go with it. Some say, eh, we don't do that. Um, but you still associate with that group and you still share some of the values and practices of that group. That makes a lot of sense. I think uh, I, I teach at a, a Catholic school, right? And so sort of Catholics are the first thing that came to mind, right? There, There's a degree or different sort of 
flavors, if you will, uh, of being Catholic, right? Like, are you the type of Catholic to only go to church on, you know, Christmas or Easter or whatever major holidays? Or, you know, are you heavily involved? Like, what does that look like? That's going to be different. And I'm sure that that's true across, you know, multiple iterations of, of what culture might look like. I would just add to that as well, um, in terms of the behavior analytic perspective on culture, I think that our perspective can really help us understand what Shannon is saying, because um, when we think about shared contingencies as those selecting our cultural practices, then um, that definition, I, it takes us to a place where we can really understand these heterogeneous groups rather than lumping them to all together as though they're homogenous, right? Because the contingencies in place don't depend on ethnicity or religion or um, you, you know, your uh, level of education or SES alone. Those things are, are, are definitely um, you know, important factors and they're going to give us some predictor variables for culture, but um, we can't go into a situation assuming that any person is going to adhere to certain cultural practices. And that's where the cultural sensitivity comes in, is trying to understand you know, different cultural norms, but also getting to know our clients as humans and as individuals so that we can tailor our uh, practices to their needs. I love that. And I, I to foreshadow a little bit, I don't want to jump ahead, but I think that sort of building the rationale and importance for the difference between, I believe you call it uh, cultural tailoring versus cultural targeting, right? Which I, I love that distinction. That was so helpful for me to read and so interesting. And I am catching myself wanting to get into it right now, but we'll, we'll save it and, and, and make sure we cover everything leading up to that. But uh, really uh, interesting nuance there, right? It's not uh, culture means this one thing. You are Catholic, therefore this, right? Well, there's a lot of different types of Catholics out there. Right. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind, too, with the second part of your question is then where does cultural sensitivity come into play and why is that important? Well, you know, as behavior analysts, we're supposed to demonstrate cultural sensitivity. Well, if you think about what does it what does culture entail and it's so big and it can vary and it's got all these levels then when you're saying, well, how can we be culturally sensitive? How can we make this in like a guidebook to follow? How do we know if we're doing it right? I think that's where a lot of us struggle, where we want to be culturally sensitive, but it seems like this kind of like vague, um, you know, requirement that we all just kind of try a little of this, a little of that. And is this sensitive? You know, am I doing it right? I feel like there's a real need for more, like guides and, and ways to know what to do, when to do it, and how. And that brings us into some of the work you did with laying out not only the rationale for why culturally sensitive practice is, is helpful in that it's going to improve outcomes and it's ethically required and all of that, but one of the things I found very helpful to start off and before we get into like the body of the paper is early on in the paper, you lay out uh, in table one, a, a list of, of terms and sort of concepts related to cultural sensitivity or cultural, uh, cultural tailoring or um, cultural skills, et cetera. There's multiple terms within that table. Why did you 
find that helpful to to lay that out and to sort of break down each of the individual related concepts? So one of the things that I noticed when I have historically tried to create documents for families um, is that, you know, trying to find out, okay, what needs to be in this and how to do it, the terminology would change from thing to thing. And so you might see cultural awareness and think, okay, well, that's cultural competence. But then you see cultural humility. Okay, well, this is cultural competence. And so you don't really know the difference. And so when we were trying to develop this kind of guideline, um, that, that really came to view where we're like, okay, we need to separate what is this all talking about? When are we doing it? You know, what does it mean? You know, and so looking at cultural competence, um, what I found is that tended with a lot of different definitions that tended to include that cultural knowledge, cultural awareness and cultural skills all being separate. And when I read more into those pieces, cultural awareness, which is more like knowing your own self and your own beliefs, is very different from cultural knowledge, which is general more of a general research and understanding of different ways other cultures can vary, although you still have to constantly build more. When you come to cultural skills, now that's putting it all together and making it useful. So what I tended to see is people that would maybe do research on different ethnicities or different types of cultures and think, okay, now that I know that I can move forward. But that doesn't mean that you're necessarily skilled in developing procedures or materials or protocols for that group. So each piece being separate and needing all the pieces to come together. Um, when we look at the culture of humility, that is that constant like reassessment and openness to understanding. Um, and if you're not doing that all along the way, then all your other stuff is going to be limited. So your, your knowledge is limited, your skills are now limited, your self-awareness is limited, and your competence is now limited. And so I found that it was helpful to know all these pieces so you can see really where all you should be working and in what way to keep driving in order to actually be culturally competent. With the, that's such a helpful clarification around those, those topics and terms. In terms of how to talk about your paper and the approach within that paper, as I sort of referred to earlier, is the, is the, would the appropriate term then be talking about culturally sensitive care? Is that sort of the un, umbrella category or how does that fit in? Yeah, so cultural sensitivity can be like a general term that a lot of people will use. Um, and so we, they use it a lot, especially within those um, health materials. And so when we're talking about cultural sensitivity um, is when you're using those skills to produce actual positive protocols or outcomes for the, the group you're working with or the person you're working with. Um, so your um, documents could show that cultural sensitivity, your protocols could show that cultural sensitivity. Um, that would be a product of using those skills. And I think one of the things that um, Shannon and I learned while writing this paper is that uh, the, the language that is used um, to describe these processes is evolving, right? It's changing, we, you know, we used to all say cultural competence, that sort of shifted into cultural sensitivity. I saw a new phrase the other day, um, cultural competency, I think, not sure, sort of a portmanteau of, you know, competence and uh, humility. So, you know, I think we're all still um, learning and that's, that's uh, so the, the table um, is, is a representation of what we've, 
um, come across up to this date. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it does continue, um, those terms continue to uh, receive modification and new terms get introduced as we identify, you know, newly important uh, processes. Well, that makes sense given that it's relatively recently getting, you know, more attention and it's been such a vastly under research, under resourced area that of course we're going to have some fluctuations and some changes as we do in science. And so I know it can be, speaking for myself, it can be difficult uh, to try to make sure I'm staying up with the latest language and, and being sensitive to that. But it makes sense, right? Uh, we want to constantly be improving and adapting and, and working toward that. Exactly. Now, in this topic, in the in the realm of like culturally sensitive care, I mean, there are a lot of avenues that one could sort of begin to apply some of the concepts and ideas of like cultural sensitivity to improve practice. Your paper sort of focuses on behavior intervention documents as being like a really meaningful area that we can apply some of these ideas. Why would it be helpful or useful to target behavior intervention documents with some of these ideas? Um, you know, that's a really good question. And it was actually the starting point of this. So the, the work in the paper has evolved over a few years. And um, it really, I started looking into the adaptation of intervention plans um, several years back when I was working with a couple of families who um, were refugee families. And I had interpreters and we were, we were simplifying, we we're using lay terms, we thought we were doing all the right things. And at a certain point I realized that some of our challenges with creating programs that the parents could and would use was more of an understanding of the world's difference. Like, so I realized this is a cultural understanding. This is a belief system difference. And so then I started looking at, well, when we have these kinds of differences, what's the best way to convey the information? And I couldn't find anything. Like I was, I was looking at what did we historically do? We use lay terms, we simplify, make short lists, this and that, but there's, everyone's just kind of guessing, you know, I've seen people do flow charts, some maybe would add a picture, some would just do a list, bullets, numbers, whatever. Um, and I was like, there's no guidelines for this. And so that's when I really started digging deeper and saying, well, you know, it kind of reminds me of when you walk into a dentist's office and there's that little pamphlet and it just shows you quick and easy, this is how we're gonna clean your teeth. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it. It's just these little steps and I understand it's so quick and easy. And then I was like, why do we have these big 50 page intervention plans? And then that's the first thing you give to the family and they don't, they just glaze over. They're just like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna set this on my table and forget about it, you know? Um, but so that's why it's one of the first things we use with families of any background um, and it's behind. It seems like the only, it seems like the only reason we have all that stuff in there is because it's an insurance requirement and we don't modify, you know, some of it because, you know, maybe we don't get paid for it or there has to be an absolute need for it or because we're kind of guessing on how to adapt it in a way that would even work. You know, so that kind of led me to focus in that area that actually started me looking at what are we doing and how can we do it better to actually help these families in a more meaningful way? That's awesome. I know that communication around 
intervention planning and treatment is such a difficult topic and there's just not a lot of resources on it. One of the very, very first things that I became interested in in the field was what's the topic of behavior support plan uh, structure and, and how you uh, communicate about those, those strategies. One of my very first experiences in the realm of developmental disabilities was working as a direct care staff in a group home where I was given like finders, you know, of whatever, the eight residents that lived there and told to read the information. And I had, I had either completed my bachelor's degree or like, you know, I was somewhere along the lines in there in a sort of behavior science focused undergraduate training. And it was very, very difficult for me to understand any of that stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm sure I didn't understand most of it. Yet, a lot of times we're handing the same exact materials over to family members, right? And regardless of their background, their culture, their primary language, like there's just so many variables that are completely and utterly ignored, which is concerning. And just one thing I would add to that, um, you know, is we included in the paper this point that we know behavior intervention plans don't work to the point that we're using them as our baselines for our research, right? It's our demonstration of like, hey, we know this isn't going to work. Let's like, let's give them a behavior intervention plan, collect some baseline, and then do our real intervention. Um, and, it, you know, unfortunately, um, people are stretched thin, resources are stretched thin, insurance companies are stretching people even more. And, um it's not always possible to uh, to implement um, uh, behavior skills training or other similar interventions that you know are evidence based. And sometimes we do need to rely on the BIPs. And if we can modify them and, and uh, create a situation where an enhanced BIP can be effective at behavior change, well, then that's you know that's valuable right there. Absolutely right. I, I, your your point is well taken that. Yeah, this is the, if you look at any sort of training strategy, it, this is the baseline phase, right? But how can we improve and enhance it, what that may be? And you do a really nice job of outlining very practical, straightforward strategies to improve these behavior intervention plans along the lines of cultural sensitivity. And so your first category or first sort of section of the paper, you talk about cultural sensitivity and health materials. And you talk about surface structure and deep structure and, and what those are and, and how those relate to intervention plans. Could you speak about those? Yes, so um, this I found specifically in the um, health material research, um, health communication materials. And so uh, this was very interesting because I had seen kind of some of these elements and some other pieces that I have read, but I thought that um, the research from uh, Reznikow et al. in 1999 did a really great job of describing those, and then also Singleist um, 2018. Those were really great resources to look at and get a good understanding, lots of examples of these. Um, but when we're talking about surface structure, this is kind of like what you would notice at a, at a glance. And a lot of times it's visuals within it. So like earlier I mentioned, you go to a dentist office and you see like 
how they're going to do the cleaning procedures. Well, it's a set of pictures in a row that you can quickly look at and just gain the information. Um, and so when we're talking about that surface structure, that kind of visual information, we're looking at how can a person look at this and connect this to their own cultural and ethnic background. Um, so with surface structure, we're looking at um, your clothing, your environment, the types of actions, the type of interactions between people um, in, in that surface structure, in those visuals, and do those agree with whichever group your, your audience is. Um, so that's where your surface structure would come in. With deep structure, you're looking more at the text, and with the text, are we looking at something that's just a technical definition or description, or are we looking at something that really captures the beliefs and values of the group that you are targeting for that information? And so with that, if you are working with a group that maybe believes that God's influence affects a lot of what happens, then the way that you word that would include that kind of development of things in a natural or spiritual way, or it needs to be tailored to that and how that can lead to the information you're trying to present. Um, the, the values such as like spirituality can be put in there. Um, the role of the, the woman or the mother can be added in there. And so when you embed these different pieces, it helps people connect to the information and relate to it better. And so one example was that um, Singlist at All 2018 article. And so they were targeting um, Mexican-American mothers. And so with that, they were comparing oral health materials for the children. And so they had kind of just our standard um, written for a white audience with pictures that had, you know, white families compared to um, Mexican families, especially wording that in included that motherly role in caretaking and um, pictures of family gathered together or of, of the supportive mother. And they found that there was a difference in not only how the families related to the material, but they did pre and post tests. And they found out that when that material included both the surface structure and the deep structure to match the culture of the reader, that they actually recall the information better and that they perform better on the post-test, which is just interesting. They're just better able to take in the information. Yeah, I mean, that is fascinating. In some ways, to me, it makes sense that you're gonna, you're gonna retain and understand information better that you contact or that you that, that, that connects with you, right? Like, I'm sure we've all, or most of us have had the experience of having like required readings as a you know kid in school and then at least for me I, I wasn't the best student in school and you know I would read the I would read a lot of the books but you know sometimes if I wasn't connecting with the material I could care less and I'd forget it instantly versus the one that like you know fit me and, and sort of connected with me and I retained that extremely well was interested in it and it would seem to be the case with the health materials as well. A couple of quick clarifying questions on some of these things. So with surface structure, would, would that, would an example of that be like the, the, the visual depiction of like a person on like an icon exchange communication system, if there's like pictures or uh, potentially like a picture model or sort of picture instructions where you have a picture of someone doing the task and, and making sure that that like matches the culture of the people who are, are receiving those materials with, with is that the same idea there 
it is the same idea. And interestingly, you, you mentioned icons, and icons even take it a step further, where not all icons mean the same thing to different people. Mm. And so if you are using something like an icon, um, something that we may think is very representative, like maybe um, a do not walk symbol, that can mean something very different to people in other um cultural backgrounds or linguistic backgrounds or from other areas of the world. So really, not only do you need to have actual images that represent, but if you're using icons, you also need to do a lot of research to make sure that that means the same thing and will be interpreted the same way. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think the same is true with like, to my understanding, ASL, like a lot of times when we're, we're training students to do a gesture, the, the the signal we do is not actually break in ASL. It's like it's like actual break. Like something is broken is what we often train our clients to do. It's an easy response, so I get it. But someone who actually uses ASL to communicate would be like, what? Maybe not follow that exactly. Right, right. And also, um, if you're thinking of something like ASL, American Sign Language has its own linguistic, its own grammar. And so when we're teaching manual signs, which maybe is probably a better description of what we do a lot. That's not necessarily following ASL grammar, it's following English grammar. And because of that, while you're building one language for this person, you're still restricting them from another. So if this child were to become, let's say, fluent later, they would need to reform all of their grammar in order to actually relate to that cultural group of deaf individuals. Right. Yeah. Wow. On the on the deep structure, you talked about you know this is like within the text. One of the pieces I found really interesting was even you had mentioned even like the tone, like like how you're writing to people. And I think you gave the example of like maybe like African American grandmothers, like the, the like I, I feel like I, I don't I remember that example precisely. You know what I'm talking about? Could you could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so that was um, Lehman et al. in 2008. And they were discussing um, coming up with programs for older Black American women in rural areas. And so with that group, having a, an authoritative tone could be um, off-putting you know, to certain people. And you could think of this too. You know, I know that with a lot of families that we come into, we are an authority. And so we, we come off in that way. And so if we come in and say, hey, your kid needs this and this and this, just in the same way as you would write it, to anybody that would see that as an authority, it could either be off-putting or you might kind of get steamrolled in your collaboration just as like, okay, this is it and I have to do it, you know? And so it can really shut people down if that's not a preferred way to communicate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and again, I sort of reflecting this back, I think it can be very easy to be patronizing or come across as patronizing when we're working with people, right? And to come across as, or to be overly direct or whatever it might be that can, can sort of put people off. It's a relatively simple solution or, or way of addressing it if you simply just identify that it's a problem in the first place, right? I mean, when I'm reading your paper and I go, oh, tone, like, how often do I think about the tone of my writing and, like, how, how important that is and, and sculpting it to fit whomever I might be targeting with that particular document? You know, even when you just think about 
regional conversation and somebody who's from New York and how they would communicate versus someone from South Carolina. Um, they're very different and either one could think that they're using an appropriate conversational tone and they could really affect each other very differently in just a conversation. So that self-awareness um, and humility for somebody to be able to explain, hey, you know, that's like a microaggression now, just the way you're interacting when you're not meaning to, you know, so it takes a lot to be even aware of those things. Yeah, for sure. When when I moved to New England, I, I noticed a difference in communication big time. People in New England tend to be, and I'll actually, Amanda, I think you went from living in Michigan to, to New England as well, so maybe you experienced yes, this. Yes, I took the same track, yep. <laughs> People are super direct here, and now I, I've gotten used to it, and I love it, and it's fine. But when I first moved here uh, with my partner, she even commented, I feel like everyone is mad at me at all times. <laughs> <laughs> and... If they're not, I mean, they, they just simply communicate in a different way, but it just felt like we were constantly being yelled at or, or sort of dismissed. I do remember, I do remember uh, feeling the same way uh, moving out there and just the pace of everything. Um, yeah, and, you know, one of the best ways to um, to uh, experience that discomfort and, um, you know, try to have a little more cultural uh, sensitivity and humility is to put yourself in situations that are uncomfortable, you know, move to different regions, talk to different people, um, you know, really be comfortable with your own discomfort so that you can grow. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I never truly fully understood how sort of quote unquote Midwestern I am or yeah, was or am until I moved to New England. I'm like, oh yeah, I've got, there's some, there's some differences. Uh, this you know, here. I also, I've lived in the Northeast, the Southeast, uh, Texas, California now, uh, and I'm from Michigan originally. And, you know, one of the things that I tell people about that is that, you know, regardless of all the regions of the United States I've lived in, it still shocks me just how similar people really are. You know, I think after you've, you've, you've gotten to know people enough, you start recognizing those similarities more than those differences. And the differences are very important and culture is important. And, and you know, I think that, that that's important to value and respect to that, that, that sense of pride of one's own culture. But, um, you know, it's just honestly been like Texas to California, for example, like huge, uh, <laughs> you know, outgroup fighting between the two states. And, um, you know, I, I just don't see it, I, to be honest with you. like the the people um are are wonderful on both sides yeah well and i think again i, I keep wanting to get into sort of stuff that's later in the paper but maybe that gets down to the difference between looking at someone individually as opposed to sort of their group identity right because you can go oh all texans are x or all californians are x but when you actually meet with people and sit down and have a conversation with a majority of the people I'll say, right. And, and, and either of those states, I think most people can connect to them. Right. And yeah, that gets at the targeting versus tailoring, right? So targeting can be helpful when, you know, there's a message that you need to get out and have it like land, you know, for the most people with the best bang for your buck, right? But it's not, <laughs> uh, it's definitely going to miss some people. And so like, um, you know, it's just like statistics. If you have a statistical finding, you can apply that finding to a group, but not an individual. Um, and so targeting is not always going to get us those best outcomes. And that's why we have tailoring and 
uh, in this particular set of guidelines that um, we've tried to develop in the paper. Yeah, I keep trying to push our conversation there, but I'm going to bring us back on track here. So you talked about the different ways or mechanisms to create more cultural sensitivity within the health materials. In the section after that, you talked about sort of the outcomes of some of those culturally sensitive health materials, and in particular, how it ties into social validity. Could, could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we want to look at with um, cultural targeting, cultural tailoring, and I don't know if we've mentioned that in our discussion yet exactly what the difference is. Um, so when we're looking at cultural targeting, um, that would be targeting the whole group. So you would do research on your group. You would um, hopefully look at some of the background factors that would contribute to the, the population you're working with. You would then move into you know, a sample of representative people, do some piloting, find out more information about that group. Um, but you're making material that, for example, like your doctor's office can just be there for that group. They can all take one and go. When we're talking about tailoring, we're, we're going from that point all the way down to the specific individual. Um, so just like we said that your culture can vary like a spectrum of your practices, your beliefs, your values. Um, now we want to fine tune it to that individual person. And so there's pros and cons with both of those. And so pros with targeting is you can try to reach more people with the amount of work you've put in and hopefully make a positive change for a group without the amount of time it takes to, to tailor every single thing to every single person. And in some instances, that might be more appropriate. Um, when we're talking about applied behavior analysis and working on the individual level, we want to take it more toward that um, cultural tailoring. And so with the tailoring, now we're looking at for you as you are a specific person in your family, what is your role personally? Um, how do you relate to your family? Uh, how much do you feel like you can change the behavior of yourself or others? And that needs to be adapted to you specifically as an individual. So when we're talking about targeting and tailoring, that's kind of the two differences there. But now when you look at it that way and we're saying, if you tailor this to your individual, and this is an individual that says, hey, I have to take care of five kids, I have to work, I have to do the housework, I have to clean dishes and, and make the food. And so while I value this, you know, I also value my time, I also value my schedule, I value my role as the caretaker. And so when you can fine tune it to that individual, then they're more likely to be on board. You'll have their buy-in for it. They're more likely to do what you're asking to. And they may also communicate better with you with what's realistic and not. You know, so if you're saying, hey, do this every day, five hours a day, they might say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to start at half an hour a week. <laughs> you know, um, but your communication with that person and, and being open and able to collaborate, um, which would be a part of that tailoring process, it's really important to get what is important to them, what is realistic for them, and can you make something that actually fits that person that you're working with and that family? Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for, for clarifying that. The next section of your paper talked about the comprehensibility in health materials, and you talk about something called a fact model and how you can achieve this. Could you, could you speak about the fact model? Yeah, 
so with the fact model, um, this was interesting. One of uh, one of the people that I was working with was Dr. Katagnus, and at the time I was working on this information, she also was participating at the Chicago School. Um, and so this was something that she worked on with another group. So this is Katagnus et al. 2020. And for fact, we're looking at the fluency, the amount, coherence, and time. Um, that's what FACT stands for. And interestingly, when I started looking into her um, work on this and the, uh, her and the co-authors, their work on this, I found a lot of overlap between other comprehensibility information. So um, another resource I had found was the CDC's guide for easy to read materials. And with that, it talks a lot about basic literacy of different groups of people, English as a second language, what level to create material so that people can understand it. And there's a lot of overlap in the information, but I thought that the fact model makes it really clear and easy to understand how to do it. And so on one hand, when you're thinking, okay, well, I need to kind of keep things short or make it understandable or use lay terms. Um, when you're looking at not only that, but the delivery of the information and the timelines for it, I think it just really adds this other dimension that we maybe overlook. Um, and so when we're talking about fluency, uh, this is really talking about the ease of processing the text and the images. So how quickly can I gain the information? Um, and one example that I found is the pictographs. And I actually found pictographs um, that started with that CDC manual um, for those guidelines. And so pictograph is a picture sequence, just like we would use um, picture sequences for our kiddos to learn how to do something. Um, these are a system of pictures that make it really easy to gain information. Um, they represent words or ideas, you know? And so that's one thing that can be added for fluency just so that you can look over and just quickly get an idea of, okay, this is what's going on. Now, fluency doesn't only include images, although that can be a big part. If you have like certain headings or what you might call like sticky words where it's like, you know, stop and look, for example, that can be part of your fluency. Um, when you're talking about the amount, this is the amount that you can process at one time. And so with this, you're looking at one topic per page, really fully discussing one topic before going to another. And even with this, they recommend three to four messages per document. So when you think about a bit, how many messages are in that document? Like it's ridiculous, you know? Um, in fact, I bet if you were working with a family and watching their face, you could probably count how many messages you go through when they glaze over and you're like, okay, that was the number. Um, and it'll probably be somewhere around there. Um, but so then when we get to coherence, this is connecting information to existing knowledge. And so this can, some of these can overlap some of that deep structure and surface structure as well. So if you know this person's background, um, how they look at life and they look at the world, then that can also help you understand this coherent part. So am I talking about something that you've experienced before? Can I relate this to something that you already understand? You know, um, one simple example would be like an SD. I typically teach this to students by relating it to a phone ringing. So the phone rings and then you answer and then someone speaks. You don't just randomly go up saying hello, hello, hello when there's no ring. And so that's kind of the same thing. You can learn that piece by connecting it to something you already understand. 
Um, and then the last part is time. So having time to process the information. And so if I give you a topic and then another, 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 by the third one, you're forgetting the first one. By the fourth one, you're like, oh, we're starting over again. And so having that time to sit with the information and process the information is really important. Um, so you would then have to space out your trainings. So if you go in there with your VIP and you've got 20 strategies, like we're going to hit the first five today, probably not going to be successful. Thank you for sharing that. It was a really excellent breakdown of everything within the, the fact model. Every frequent listener of, of BAPCAST will know that I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of tables, in particular tables that really break things down and, and make it easy to consume. And I've got your table pulled up, table two, I was looking at it as you went through. Uh, if for the listeners out there that are interested in the model or interested in this paper uh, in general, uh, this paper has amazing tables, and, and I love it. But for just even simply looking at fact, really great breakdown of the key indicators, examples, descriptions, et cetera, make it really, really easy for you to download the paper, check it out, and get some, some quick information. Within the fact model and, and starting to sculpt some of these written materials to fit different cultures uh, more appropriately and more effectively. You talked about some additional nuances that might be applicable for parents of children with, with autism or autistic children. Could, could you talk about that? Yeah, so one of the things that I had been looking at as well is you know when we're looking at parents and we're looking at adherence we generally in the field my experience has been that we all acknowledge that it can be hard to get parents to do the procedures that we're teaching um sometimes i i'll hear practitioners say well they know they're just choosing not to do it or they don't want to do it and really when you take a step back what you're looking at is adherence or even just dropping out altogether and they're like i'm just not going to do this and so I was doing some research to kind of find out more of why that is. Like, can we find like some solid reasons why, you know, parents are not adhering? Why is it a struggle? Why do they seem to choose not to, you know, follow these instructions? And so when we look at that through the lens of comprehensibility and um, cultural sensitivity, what we can see is that, that if we have families that have instrumental and ideological barriers, then that's going to impede their ability to accept what we're telling them to do and choose to do it. And so if we're looking at instrumental barriers, those are things like they've got too many other demands, they've got multiple roles in the home, there's not enough time, or there's too many steps of what we're asking to do and they just can't get through them all. Other children may be interrupting, you know, um, or even the cost of treatment. Those can all be like systemic challenges or like instrumental challenges. And when we look at ideological barriers, those are things like they the parents might just believe it's not gonna work. Um, they might think they're not able to change a child's behavior. Um, and they might have beliefs regarding what they're seeing. Some might think this is just God's will. And so when you're looking at it from those two points of view and you look at some of the research on what parents say as why they drop out of these programs, they really line up, you know? And so it's kind of interesting that you can look at it in those two ways, you know? And there was one thing that I had actually found recently, Ike Wuka et al. 
2016 article, The Ideological Versus Instrumental Barriers to Accessing Formal Mental Health Care. Um, and this was that, that a more significant barrier when your ideological differences were in the way when as compared to your um, instrumental barriers. And so they said that even if you fix the instrumental or systemic barriers, so people have transportation, they have time, they have money, they have childcare. If you don't address the ideological barriers, they're still not going to come and they're still not going to participate. And so that was one of the findings of that study, which I just recently came upon. And I thought, wow, that is really interesting because in the paper, when I wrote it, I kind of have them all the same. Um, and I didn't think of them necessarily as one being more important than the other. But really, you know, I think we tend to look at it the opposite way where, oh, this parent's too busy or there's too many kids in the home or they have other things going on. But really what this other research is saying is that that the ideological barriers are actually more um, heavily weigh on their participation than the um, systemic or instrumental barriers. So even if you do something, you know, you provide childcare, you're there for them, it's free, they might still not do it because of their beliefs and, and their background. It just doesn't, doesn't match. And so they still don't participate. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I, in, in many ways, it makes sense because, you know, you think about families who have the resources and ability, but uh, just in terms of like behavior analytic treatment, that maybe they've heard things about misconceptions about behavior analysis, have an idea as to what it is, and they're just flat out not interested, right? So you could argue in that situation, that's an ideology or belief that is directly influencing their access. And I think that sort of speaks to the importance of making sure that good information, high quality, accurate information about our field is getting out there so that people, you know, don't have those biases coming in. And then obviously there are more individual sort of beliefs and uh, values and everything that would affect that as well. Right. And if you don't have a good method for identifying those beliefs and values and then addressing them in an appropriate way, you, you're still going to just wonder why, why do we keep showing up and they don't do it? I don't get it. What's happening here? You, you know, you, you're going to get frustrated and thinking they're just choosing not to do it, but I don't know why. And it's kind of silly. You know, one of the things that I was pointing out, you know, from the framework of looking at your verbal behavior in the VIP is the verbal behavior should evoke the, the right behavior change for your audience. And if it's not, then we need to do something different, not just say, well, it's their fault. They don't want to do it. Okay, well, you know, we should have more skills than that, I suppose. It's, a, it's amazing how often I hear people use that type of language where, yeah, they're not doing it. It's their fault. They're lazy, blah, 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 blah. If our clients don't do something or they're doing something different than, you know, what they're supposed to be focused on in that given moment, we don't go, well, we shouldn't be going, I hope, going, oh, it, you know, there's something wrong with the client. We go, no, why is the client engaging in this behavior or not engaging in this behavior? And let me try to systematically address that so that I can help this client benefit from the services. Yet we seem to cut that off with caregivers and especially direct care staff, right? Right. Yeah, it's funny where, and I don't know if it has to do with 
um, how we're trained, you know, on the education side where we're so focused on client behavior change. And then there's like this drop off of, you know, the parent, the, the caretaker, you know, what is the motivation behind their behavior? What are their reinforcers, you know? And then when we look at, you know, cultural behaviors and culturally developed behaviors, and there's so much going into it. Um, one thing to think about too, is if you look at culturally foreign behaviors as a lot of rule governed behaviors and how rule governed behavior is resistant to the contingency shaping. And so, I mean, that's kind of what you're up against. So you have to use a different set of tools when working with that group. And if that includes changing their verbal behavior or building in a new um, script or narrative into that in order to then shape their behavior. I think that that needs to be something that we are kind of upping our skills and looking at and, and having more techniques in that area. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's really well said. And I think it's an important point to keep us moving along because I'm, I'm paying attention to the to the time here. And I don't think one podcast episode could really ever do this topic justice, but to cover, try to cover anyway, some of the big pieces of your paper. One of your sections provides a general VIP adaptation uh, process. And within that, you've got, I think, three tables, tables three through five that really go into detail and provide a ton of examples. And it's just, there's extremely well structured, helpful, useful tables and so i don't want us to try to go through all of those i really recommend that the listeners check those tables out but are there any sort of big pieces any 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 parts from this that you want to highlight while we talk about it well i think that when you and when when people look at the tables and kind of get that picture you have at the start like what is the general process for trying to adapt your material all the way down to how can I do it with this specific document for this specific family. Um, and I think really approaching it first globally and then like honing down all the way to the details of your family um, and your client, I think that's going to be really important for people. Um, but when you get down to it and you see that there can be a lot of time and energy spent into adapting each procedure for each person. Um, one thing that I find in my own practice as I've been using these and developing, developing them more through my research and with my clients is that if you can set yourself up with templates, um, with general like TAs for your procedures and then, and then take those and adapt them. I feel like that's really a great strategy. And so I do have an example in there, one of my figures of what it could look like, one simple strategy, um, how you could build that. And so what I do is I make basically templates like that. I have my general task analysis for what I'm trying to teach. And then I use all this information and adapt them down per client. That makes a lot of sense. And that seems consistent with just overall best practices for the fact that our clients need individualized treatment, right? And so you're identifying in this paper and through these tables and through these resources, one way that they need to be individualized, right? But we know, I think as a field, that everything needs to be individualized, but perhaps 
people don't always have the resources and information to be able to do that in a way that is culturally sensitive and effective. Right. As we start to wrap things up here, are there any resources or even future directions that people who are interested in this topic should should look for or keep an eye out for? Yeah, so I'm gonna let Dr. Mahoney start on this one. This is something we were just discussing the other day. Um, if you wanna go into a little bit more of what we are saying and then I'll kind of pick up on the back end. Yeah, I need a second to find my notes from when we were talking about this the other day. Sorry, I put you on the spot. And um, that's okay. Um, Cody, are you looking more for practical resources or research in the field? Whatever, whatever you guys want to talk about. I mean, it's, it's sort of whatever you think is most interesting in terms of resources or future directions. Some people talk about, you know, they'll list other articles or podcast episodes or whatever. Some people go, you know, here's some research areas that are being developed. It's, it's sort of user discretion. Um, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So Uh, okay, so I think, yeah, there's um, a lot of resources that our field has developed that if uh, you haven't had the opportunity to access those, um, definitely go back and um, start there. So like Elizabeth Fong has uh, written a lot on um, this topic and in 2013 developed a clear set of guidelines for our field and how to move toward cultural competency. Um, Bridget Taylor's work, Causeway Matsuda's work, Matthew Broadhead's work are great places to start and to incorporate um, some of their uh, perspectives and guidelines. Um, I think that um, uh, there are also resources outside of our fields that um, would be helpful to start with. Um, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is a good one to start with. Uh, in terms of self-reflecting on your own biases so that you can start to think uh, more deeply about how you can modify your um, practices uh, as a behavior analyst to be more uh, culturally sensitive. And, um, you know, there's tons and tons of podcasts Casts out there that are wonderful. Um, just uh, uh, recently, I was listening to one by Clarissa Chia from the University of Maryland, uh, who is a child um, psychologist. Uh, she does developmental psychology type of work. And I think that looking and seeing what other fields are doing is important. So that you might want to check out uh, that podcast uh, if you're interested in getting a perspective that might be a little different than uh, what our field's offering. Yeah, so, I mean, that brings up a lot of ideas, and I have some notes here, um, but, but along the lines of looking at what other people are doing, you know, I think um, in my upbringing in applied behavior analysis, it's been somewhat like, you know, this is what we do, and it's all us and only us, and the only research we consider is within our own, and I think that that has been a very limiting experience. And so throughout this process, realizing like so many other groups have so much to offer, you know, um, if you're looking into the compassionate care, there's a lot coming on right now. 
Um, and so, you know, I know there's like CEU events coming up with that. Um, looking at motivational interviewing is another great way of building like skills to relate and engage with other people. I feel like it's a really important piece for us in our field. I think that we sometimes get so caught up in the science of it that we forget to be good humans as well, you know, <laughs> and just relate to people, you know. And so um, with that, um, one of the things that I like to point out is, is we have the CIFA, the Culturally Informed Functional Assessment Interview, which is the Tanaka Matsumi 1996 article. It gives you a nice framework of the type of information you will want to gather from people to understand the, the root cause of behavior problems within the home and the family's perception of those challenges. Um, and then coming up with a way to work on those that is appropriate culturally and for the family as well. Um, one thing uh, that I would point out is this, because we had been working on this for several years, a lot of the editorial process was happening during the months following the murder of George Floyd. And it was really rapidly changing and what is appropriate and inappropriate and the, you know, identifying implicit bias and how we talk about things and what we say. And by participating in groups like um, BABA, um, Black Behavior Analysts, um, you can get an idea of not only what does it mean to be an ally and support others, and I think one habit that, I don't know, white people have had is speaking for others. And I, I suspect that, you know, I may have done the same thing and not realizing you're trying to be helpful, but you need to look at the information that's out there, participating in these groups, being on the line of cultural humility and open and listening to what other people want from you, you know? And I think that when you look at other people, it shouldn't be at face value, quite literally with ethnic or racial background because um, people have all different experiences in life and things need to be culturally appropriate for all people, regardless of if you think, oh, well, this person looks like me, so I got it, I'm good. No, you need to give every person the dignity to have their own cultural and spiritual um, assessment and changes made when it's needed for that as well. So I think taking a step away from what you see in front of your face and changing your process of learning people one by one and giving each person that kind of individuality, I think can be really important. Um, and then with that, looking for more tools. And so um, for my dissertation, what I did is putting this whole tutorial together, I realized that I had to pull information from all different sources to give a framework based on what I could find as like a starting point. And so with my dissertation, I started investigating the use of these materials with um, families, with parents, uh, with autistic children, and looking at the efficacy of using these compared to typical behavior intervention plans and the preference for them. So do parents prefer them? Would they choose them over typical standard materials during training? And do they perform any better? Because really, as much as we want to do the right thing and, and honor people and show that we care, we also need to make things that are effective. And so all these tools still need to be developed further, researched, and really fine-tuned as, you know, how much of each piece do we need to add? Where should we vary that? Where is it no longer effective? Or how can we make it more effective? So... I think that that's another piece that, that needs to be in this as well. 
your dissertation sounds awesome. Um, really look forward to seeing it get published and, and being able to read it hopefully sometime in the near future. That's really, really cool. Um, I'm really excited for you. Hope I hope it's going well. I don't, I, you kind of mentioned that you're somewhere in that process. Is it are you done? You've got your data? I've got the data. Ooh. I'm in the publication process. Yeah, I'm in that whole editing piece again. Okay. I'm a little weary of it because this one, what I found is because cultural adaptation and, and all of this information is so new is that it takes a really long time to get it right. And even like I was saying in, in this piece, the terminology was changing as I was writing it. And so I'd write it one way and be like, no, we can't say any of this. That's no longer correct. Now rewrite it this way, you know? And I would say that my um, copy editor for this article was amazing she was so smart and um she had great ideas a lot of these tables too she's like let's make it this way so somebody could just make a copy and keep it with them and use it and i was like oh you're so smart mm -hmm. um but really even some of her recommendations on terms like she was saying one thing that she suspects is going to change in the very near future is the word diverse populations mm -hmm. so in a lot of our you know ethics we need to be culturally competent to work with diverse populations and she was saying that just means non-white you know but really um we should say that is it non-white marginalized minoritized then use those terms because really saying they're diverse is really just separating them from being white and so i'm like oh i never thought of it that way but just having to rethink things and being open to that along the way i think is really important so um, I'm a little nervous, like I was saying, about my dissertation because I'm like, oh, here we go again. It's going to be like all this back and forth and change, change, change. So I'm hoping it's a little bit smoother um, since the last one took so long. But yeah, definitely looking forward to getting that out there. Well, I wish you the best of luck in that process. I know as well as anyone that going through the editorial process is not very much fun but an important piece of the process. And so I wish you the best of luck. I look forward to reading that. I look forward to checking out a lot of those resources you listed and just greatly appreciate your time in, in putting together this paper and then coming on the show today to talk about it. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Cody. This was great. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you leave, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use to listen to the episode. Also, find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bat papers that we should review. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thanks to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervias and Jesse Perrin. And thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.